Hello, Sean Morrow here. I hope you enjoyed Season 2 of Who Is, the podcast from Now This. If you listened to our last episode, you heard Reverend Dr. William Barber II. Reverend Dr. Barber is a major civil rights leader, organizer, and also a certified genius. He got the MacArthur Grant in 2018, which is unofficially called the Genius Grant. Barber is the founder of Repairers of the Breach and runs the revitalized modern version of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign. You're going to hear something a little different today. My full, unedited conversation with Reverend Barber for a different perspective on politics and power. Well, my name is uh, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. Uh, I live in Goldsboro, North Carolina, past the Greenlee Christian Church. I'm the national co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, National Call for Moral Revival, and President Senior Lecturer of the Paris of Breach. I describe most of all as a pastor and a moral activist um, in dealing with issues of civil rights and poverty ever since I was 17 years old, some, some 40 years ago. Um, my focus as a theologian is public policy and public theology and how we must have fusion coalitions of people made up of every race, creed, color, and sexuality and geography to address five interlocking injustices, systemic racism in all of its formats, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. Uh, when we started Poor People's Campaign three years ago, my co-chair, Reverend Dr. Liz Steele Harris, uh, we, we, we started, we now have 43 coordinating committees across the country, state coordinating. Uh, in June of 2020, we had a mass Poor People's Assembly Mall March on Washington. On June 20th, digitally, three, over 3 million people showed up. And um, we have produced a a Mall Jubilee budget produced a study called The Souls of Poor Folk, auditing America 50 years since the Poor People's Campaign uh, in 1968. And we are bringing together people from the Appalachian Mountains of Kentucky to the flatlands of Alabama, from Mississippi Delta to Maine, from California to Carolina, uh, deeply committed to, to uh, fighting for living wages, guaranteed incomes, health care for all, fair and just immigration policies, Addressing mass incarceration, police brutality, resegregation of our schools, redlining, uh, the denial of climate justice, the war economy, uh, and also this false moral narrative of religious nationalism that keeps us in the illusion of division. Uh, and finally, in this season of voting, we are particularly focused on the fact that one, one third almost of the electorate is now poor and no wealth in 15 states. Poor, low-wealth people who didn't vote last time, if just 1% to 19% of those would vote, it could change the elections from the Senate to the White House uh, and beyond. Uh, there are 64 million eligible poor and low-wealth poor low voters in this country. 29 million voted last time. A recent study called um, Unleashing the Power of the Vote uh, of Poor and Low-Wealth People showed that Three reasons why they have not voted. One is they don't hear politicians talking about their name, their condition, the poverty. Two, transportation and work. They couldn't get off work. And three, voter suppression. But we know that if you organize in that community, they hold the power to change the balance of power in this country, especially from Maryland to New Mexico and the, what we call the Sun Belt in the South. Um, um, and that's what we're working in right now 
to build power and shift the narrative around poverty uh, because there are 140 million poor low-wealth people in this country before COVID. One, 43% of this nation are poor and low-wealth, and we cannot ignore that any longer as a public policy issue. So, like you mentioned, 100 million vote, eligible voters didn't vote in 2016. Uh, there's an election in, what, 10 days, 11 days? Why should they vote in 2020? Why does it matter? Especially considering how powerless people might feel, especially during coronavirus, especially considering how unfair it feels, thinking of institutions like the Electoral College determine who becomes president. Um, so know, knowing everything people know, why should they vote this year? Well, 100 million people didn't vote last election, 60, 34 million of them poor as well. And a lot of them didn't vote for various and sundry reasons, some voter suppression, some uh, voting is not a holiday in this country, as it should be. Uh, some had to work and couldn't get off for uh, election day. They didn't have an election season. But when you feel desperate, it's the actual time you should exhibit your power. The very fact that there's a pol politics in, in, the, in this country coming down now from the White House and the United States Senate that is saying we will take your health care. We will deny you living wages. We will undermine your ability to survive in COVID. We will not put policies in place. And because we didn't do it, some nearly 200,000 people died that did not have to do it. We have people elected in office who are saying we will be overtly racist in our political office. We will tell you we're going to suppress your vote. We will stack the Supreme Court rather than provide your stimulus. Anytime a person that is elected in office will stand up in front of you basically and say, I'm going to do more of this if you let me get back in office. Uh, I've proven to you that I will undermine justice. I've proven to you that I will promote racism and economic inequality. Well, they got there by the vote. We should take them out by the vote. They, were, they, they are in power able to do the things they're doing uh, because of the vote or because people didn't vote. We can change that reality. We don't have to continue to accept it. And the reality is, when we think about all this voter suppression, nobody would be fighting this hard to suppress the vote, to lie about voter fraud, if the vote was not powerful. And so voting is one of the tools, not the only one, but one of the tools, particularly poor and well people should use, is one of our voices. It's not the only voice, but when you're in a fight for democracy, when you're in a fight for justice, you don't elect perfect people, but you do choose to elect people, elect those that are closest to your values and then push them once they get elected. But the last thing you can do is afford to sit out because when you sit out, you open the door for demagogues and extremists and neo-fascists to, to, to go in and, and because of low voting, they then end up having high power. And they have high power to do high crimes against the people of this country and especially the most vulnerable. And beyond actually personally going to the ballot box, obviously with uh, when people talk about an institution like the Electoral College, you said we must fight, organize, register voters in the South. Trump is counting on a 193 electoral vote head start, but if just four states change in the South, everything changes. Can you explain? Yeah. Ever since 1968, Richard Nixon, Pat Buchanan, a guy by the name of Kevin Phillips, they came up with a theory called positive polarization. They said that they could use those that hated the gains of the civil rights movement. They could find a way to talk about politics without sounding racist, but all the while be racist. They would talk about force busing, uh, tax cuts, uh, states' rights, being against abortion, being against gay people. But at the end of the day, 
that kind of talk would be wedge issues and it would allow people to get elected who primarily treat corporations like people and people like things, but also primarily get elected because of division. And Pat Buchanan and, and Kevin Phillips said to Richard Nixon, we can use this tactic. And if we do, we can split uh, the Democratic Party in the South. We will get the better half of the split. We can uh, make the Republican Party, in essence, the party of the white man all over the South. We can use these wedge issues to cause people to vote, sometimes against their own best interests. One writer called it the great illusion. And then they knew, though, if they did that and divided the country and used division to hold, you know, as a way of holding on to power, they could control from Maryland to New Mexico, which is the South and the Sun Belt, the 193 electoral college votes. Now, in some ways, Democrats walked away from the South. They bought into the illusion and stopped fighting and stopped realizing that in the South, you can organize poor and low-wealth people. Uh, in the South, uh, that you can communities together, that, that these communities down south are not so much red states as they are unorganized states and unfought for states, and especially now, because the demographics have so shifted. Third of all poor people live in the south, third of all poor white people live in the south. In places like North Carolina, if just 19% of poor and low-wealth people voted in this election, they could overcome the margin of victory from 2016, 7% in Florida. Uh, 10% in Mississippi and somewhere around 11, 10% in Texas. And that's not even counting Georgia, Virginia, and, uh, and, and, and some other states. So we can't allow this illusion to continue to last. We, we have to stop overestimating the power of extremists and get in there and organize. Because if you give a person 193 electoral college vote head start in a race to 270, then basically all they need is 77 votes from the other states around the, uh, the country. We just cannot do that, and we don't have to do it. The demographics are there. The issues are there. If we, we, we pull people together around addressing systemic racism, systemic poverty, uh, we can actually build these broad-based voting coalitions. Obama proved it in 2008. Of course, he also used the, the, the same-day registration early voting process that we won in the movement. I was a part of the uh, work that won that uh, a year before Obama ran for office, but he proved you can win in Virginia, you can win in the South, you can win in South Carolina, you can win in Florida, but you have to be willing to organize there and, and, and push out an agenda that speaks to all people. And you cannot leave out of that agenda uh, uh, speaking to and saying something about lifting those who are too often stuck at the bottom, lifting those people who work every day of their lives but still make less than a living wage. And so um, if, if we're serious about this democracy, we've got to break the back of the solid South. And it's right here. It's within our grasp. We can do it. Uh, the numbers have been there for a long time. And in some ways, COVID is forcing people to come together. It's forcing people to break free of the illusion. Many people are seeing that these same people that will tell them, vote for me because I'm against gay people, I'm against women's right to choose, are the same people not protecting them in the midst of COVID, who have denied health care before COVID and during COVID, who have blocked them having sick leave and paid unemployment and rent forgiveness and mortgage, mortgage forgiveness, uh, and have blocked them from getting $15 in a union. And people's eyes are starting to come open and say these people that play these race wedge issues and culture issues at the end of the day, they really only care about themselves and corporations. That's who they really care about. And COVID is creating a new kind of voting community 
that I'm believing is going to have fundamental change across the South. In the Poor People's Campaign, we are calling 2 million voters in eight states, uh, five of them in the South, 2 million poor and low-wealth voters who are infrequent voters and letting them know the power that they have if they will exercise it and get out to vote in this season. More from Reverend Dr. Barber after this. Welcome back to a bonus episode of Who Is? You're hearing Reverend Dr. William Barber II talk about what America's electoral process means for representation. And when you think about these, these groups and these corporations, can you reflect a little bit on representation and political power? When it comes to who is representative and who isn't, who has power and who doesn't, how is this playing out in states like North Carolina, which is, again, one of the important states in all this too important election? Well, you know, I believe in reconstruction politics. I believe we need a third reconstruction. Reconstruction is not just about making new laws, but who sits at the table to make those laws. It's a model that grows out of a period between 1868 and 1890s when black and white people formed new coalitions in the South and took over state legislatures and, and, and the congressional representations and gubernatorial offices. And they got together across race lines to change the direction of the South post-slavery. It was violently resisted. Uh, it was undermined. The Constitution was changed to, to Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, all in an effort to resist Reconstruction politics. We have, again, this power, for instance, in North Carolina. Now, North Carolina, Trump won North Carolina by 150,000 votes. But we know 150, we had 150 fewer voting sites. We had not finished winning the war against the voter suppression case that, uh, that came after uh, the Shelby decision in 2013. We've now won that case. And the courts have said that what they did was racism with surgical precision. Uh, we've also uh, beat back all of the uh, gerrymandering. The lines have been redrawn. But even in 2016, before we won all of that, we are the only state in the South that beat Trump down, down ticket. Uh, we diversified the state Supreme Court, uh, took the governor's office, took the uh, AG's office, put more progressive persons in office. And now after these other victories, we actually have the power uh, if, if 68, 70% of people turn out to vote, extremists can't win. If 75% of people turn out to vote, extremists can never win. And, but that also can change the dynamic. Right now, for instance, the people who are making decisions in the United States Senate for who, for, of who will sit on the Supreme Court come from the states that are the least populous. But they are also the states that have the highest voter suppression and some of the lowest turnout. But in those same states, if we had higher turnout and deeper cross-racial organizing and cross-geographical uh, organizing around issues, we could fundamentally shift. That's why you're seeing races like in Mississippi. Mike Epstein is within a point now. In Mississippi, Jamie Harrison is tied. In South Carolina, Cal uh, Cunningham is leading. They represent more progressive. And I don't agree with everything they stand, but they represent far more progressive than the current members of the United States Senate. And they are showing that with organizing and focus and clarity around agenda, that they can be a part of changing the makeup of the United States Senate and therefore the, the who sits in power to, in fact, um, uh, implement policies. Po politics, voting is about power. 
you're going to make a difference in this country, you have to not only pro you protest in the street, but you also protest with your votes. And then when you get the power, you protest with policy. You write policy that changes the prevailing realities of injustice and turns them towards justice. And so politics is about power, uh, building power and changing the narrative. Moral politics is about the same thing. In fact, uh, uh, engage, being engaged in political transformation and electing people to office is a form, is one way that you implement your moral agenda, that you're able to put it in some concrete form. Uh, if we didn't have that, we'd have never had the 13th Amendment in the Constitution and the slavery, 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law, 15th Amendment, uh, guaranteeing voting, the Civil Rights Act of 64, 65, the, the 19th Amendment that guaranteed women the right to vote, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. All of those things came as a matter of the vote. That, that you had to change who was in office and then push those that were in office to do the things that would lift all people. It has not changed. We still have to do that today. Excellent, excellent. And and, and I, I just want to get into one little bit of definition, but what is the third reconstruction? Ah. And what is that? what is the change you envision that could unfold in the South? Yeah, the third reconstruction is a concept I, I coined. It comes out of, uh, it's actually a book, and it came out of the Mall Monday movement in North Carolina when we took on extremist Republicans and Tea Party Republicans who were trying as hard as they could to turn the clock back. And one of the ways we took them on was we used the fusion coalition model of the first reconstruction. When former uh, poor whites and blacks, former slaves and freedmen came together after the Civil War, figured out that they had been duped, and they began to work together to guarantee education, to guarantee voting rights, to guarantee freedom, uh, uh, to guarantee equal rights before the court. That was the work of black and white people coming together. Now, there was this massive movement called the, the um, Redemption Movement. It sounds holy, but it was very unholy. that said, we must take America back. And by taking it back, they meant taking it back from those who believe in democracy and believe in moving the country toward a more genuine democracy. And with voter suppression, Jim Crow laws, and violence, and cutting taxes, and stealing elections through the, through the Electoral College, they were able to do that. And by 1896, the third, first Reconstruction was over. The second Reconstruction is 1954 to 1968, beginning with the Brown decision that overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and said separate but equal was unconstitutional. And then after that, you get the Civil Rights Movement, the March of Washington, the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65. You get 18 and 19-year-olds later in around 1970, who, who are 18-year-olds who achieved the right to vote because of the because of the um, uh, 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 backlash of what happened in Vietnam. But the Civil Rights Movement was a Reconstruction era. It is in that era, 1954, that a lot of people who didn't get included in the 1935 Social Security Act become included, which, which brought in a lot of black people and a lot of uh, poor women. You get Medicare, you get Medicaid, you get the war on poverty. Uh, all of these things are happening, and, and, and a lot of it is happening in the 60s again, because uh, 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 blacks are returning to the Congress. Uh, many of them have been put out after 1896, and it took a long time to get representation back again. But Reconstruction was changing who was in office and therefore what kind of policies were passed. Then it was ended by the Southern strategy and the election of Richard Nixon and the death of Dr. King and so forth and so on. I believe we're in the birth pains of a third Reconstruction. I believe that's why extremists 
like Trump and Pence and, and McConnell are fighting so hard to control the courts and the hold on the power because they know that there's a demographic shift that is in America. And if that demographic shift votes and wakes up and understands its power and stops saying how much power the extremists have but recognizes its own power, it can fundamentally change who's in the electorate. And that's third reconstruction beginning when you change who gets elected and who sits in the seats of power. And then once they sit in the seats of power, they seek to pass policies that reconstruct society, change it from a uh, change the laws to create more poverty and create more uh, racial uh, animosity and racial injustice. Reconstruction is about changing who sits in power. And then based on who sits in power, they change the how power is used and what kind of policies are passed. I believe America is overdue a third reconstruction, a fundamental uh, uh, shifting of public policy toward a more perfect union, toward a more genuine democracy, finishing the work that we that wasn't finished in the first and second reconstruction. And I believe that possibility is right before us right now. Uh, and that part of the reason we saw the rise uh, and, the, and the stealing of an election through the Electoral College of someone like Trump. And part of the reason we see uh, uh, the Republican senators doing what they're doing to try to stack the Supreme Court is they see it. They know the demographics have shift. They know this is probably their last time when they'll really be able to, to control a national election. They see the handwriting on the wall. They know even the South is changing. And they know, so they're trying to hold back any significant third reconstruction, but I believe that it can't be held back and that we must, in fact, uh, push forward. Uh, on this show, we've just spent a, like about a year looking into all these different kinds of things, from the Electoral College to, to, to voter suppression, um, to the, the, the courts, as you mentioned. So I'd like you to directly address the 100 million voters who didn't vote in 2016, who might look at all of these things, might watch the news and feel cynical and disillusioned. And I think, like, because of the Electoral College, my vote doesn't count because of voter suppression, because of gerrymandering, because of the courts. What's your message for these people who might feel no hope and why, why they should well, vote in 2020 and why it matters? Yeah, well, well, I come from North Carolina, where they tried voter suppression in 2013. We beat them in the courts and in the streets uh, and in the voting box. Um, we knew the truth. Uh, that what they would was racism. We also knew that we still had not seen the full complement of North Carolina voters voting. And I would say to people who who, who flip, flip the script, in other words, rather than that, understand something that they said in South Africa when it, when apartheid was coming to an end, only a dying mule kicks the hardest. Why is why do neo fascists and extremists lie so much? Because they don't want you to know the truth. The truth is we are 140 million. That's power. The truth is we are 100 million. That's power. The truth is we are 64 million poor and low-wealth people. That's power. The truth is we're 31 million African Americans eligible to vote. The truth is even the current oxygen in the White House only won by 60 million votes. If 100 million sat, people sat home, that means, and, and then he didn't win by 60 million votes. He got 60 million votes. He won by 80,000 votes. In the state that he won by 80,000 votes, there are more than 2 million poor and low-wealth people eligible to vote who did not vote. We know 100 million people did not vote. He won by 80,000 votes. We have to stop, stop this business of overestimating our adversaries. 
even with the, even with the voter suppression, if we turn out, he loses. The only reason he or uh, he or someone like him was able to win is because yes of the electoral college, but the electoral college kicks in after the people vote. In Wisconsin, for instance, Trump won by twenty five, thirty thousand votes. Two hundred fifty thousand votes were suppressed, but hundreds of thousand people still stayed home. In Michigan, he won by ten thousand votes. A hundred thousand African Americans alone in Detroit did not vote. Now, why should you vote? Look at where we are now. Everything we're facing was caused by somebody who was elected that didn't do their job. Somebody who was elected that didn't do their job. All this death from COVID, all this denial of PPEs, all this money going to the corporations and not going to the people, all of this denying the basic essentials you need for essential workers. This is not some ghost that did this. It's an elected official. And just like they can be elected, they can be unelected. And in your state, the Senate, there's no college. That's a straight-up vote. They only win if we stay home. They only win if we disengage. They only win if we don't exercise our power. We have too much power to leave any of it on the table. And more importantly, if you think it's bad now, it will be catastrophic if we continue this path of public policy. The fact of the matter is, those who have Miss, miss, have not dealt right with COVID, and even before COVID, who gave money to the greedy while they while they 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 cut the wages of of poor. I mean, refused to uh, increase the wages of poor lower people. People who sit in office and got free health care because they are governor, they are senator, they are congressperson, they are president, but then they turn around and deny the people that elect them health care. There's something blasphemous about that. I'm speaking from a spiritual perspective now. There's something wrong about there. They need time out. They need to go home. And you can send them home. But you can't send them home if you believe their hype, if you believe their illusion. And the only reason people do illusion is because they're not real. The only reason somebody works magic is because it's not real. The only reason someone lies because the truth is too powerful. And the only reason somebody would be fighting to suppress your book because they know just how great it is if you know it. And if we know it, and if we'll use it. And so don't tell me that we're tired. Don't tell me it doesn't matter. Too many people died and bled for us to have this right. It would be wrong for us not to use it. If we're concerned about all this death, all this denial, 500 Latino babies being snatched from their families, and nobody knows where they are, all this stuff was created by people who got it, who have power to get elected, refusing to address police brutality and death on the local level. All that's elected people, elected folk, people to get elected. If you go check in your local areas, you'll find some of them got elected by 1,000 votes here, 500 votes there, 10,000 votes here, with millions of people who chose not to vote. Why don't we choose to vote, choose to fight for this democracy? Choose to vote, and then after we vote, choose to push the people we vote, voted for. But the last thing we need to be doing is choosing to disengage and to sit home. And when you mention these uh, like lies and illusions, what do you think is the is the greatest lie and illusion that the American public, that the that activists are facing today? Well, when it comes to voting, as I said, the greatest illusion of these so-called red states are, are in fact red states and extremist states. 
when in fact they're unorganized state. Their greatest illusion is not recognizing that poor and low wealth people have the power right now to change the balance of power. If poor and low wealth people just vote at the same level of people making $50,000 a year and above, they fundamentally change. And I'm not talking about primarily black people. 60, there's 66 million poor and low wealth white people in this country, 26 million black people uh, in terms of raw numbers. And so the greatest illusion is to have all that power and then to believe that extremists actually have the power when they really don't. They really don't. This country has never seen what it would look like if 80% of us vote, voted. We've not seen that. So we can't really say we know anything because we've never seen that in modern times. But it's time that we see it. It's time, past time that we see it. It's past time that we exercise our right to vote at that power. Let's do that and then let's talk afterwards. But let's not say, because of the illusions of power, that there's no hope and there's nothing we can do. For instance, Mitch McConnell, the number of poor people in North in 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 in, in Kentucky alone outdistanced them his margin of victory. The number of people who work for less than living wage outdistance his margin of victory. We have to, we have overestimated the power of extremists, and we've underestimated our own power. And we have, we must break through free from that illusion. We also must break through free from the illusion that voter suppression is about black people. Now, racist voter suppression is targeted at black and brown people, indigenous people. But what you should know is the people who get elected by racist voter suppression, they also block living wages that hurt the majority of white people. They block health care that hurts the majority of white people. The bottom line is we must get over this illusion that racism is just about black people. Racism is targeted at black, brown, indigenous people. But racism hurts us all. Racism is ultimately a hatred for humanity a hatred for the Imago Dei and every human being, and a hatred for democracy itself. And we cannot allow racism, systemic racism, to continue to drive us apart or continue to win by these small margins. And then once they win by small margins, they engage in big devastation of fundamental justice and fairness and human rights. It does not have to be this way. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Barber, for your time. And thank you, listener, for listening to this conversation on political power as we approach such an important election. And thank you for listening to the season as a whole. By the time we're back for season three, we'll know who the next president is, probably. So we'll have a whole new cast of characters and ideas to dive into. Who is the podcast returning early 2021? Is there an episode you want us to make? Email me, sm at nowthismedia.com or find me on social media, S-N-M-R-R-W on everything. Who is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, writer and senior producer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. 
Our executive producers are Nancy Han, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. 